This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Kathleen Keller, the author of Colonial Suspects, Suspicion, Imperial Rule, and Colonial Society in Interwar French West Africa, and the book was published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2018. Hi there, Kate. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me. Could you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France? I'm an associate professor of history at Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter, Minnesota, and I'm also the chair of the history department. And I got interested in France, I think, really going back to around seventh or eighth grade when I started studying French for the first time. And I was just really captivated, not only by learning the language, but about the idea of going to France and studying there. And so when I was an undergraduate, I was a history and French double major. And I had a really fantastic study abroad experience that in a lot of ways made me love France more, helped me to learn French better, um, but also, you know, made me aware of some of the negatives in France, that there was racism there, that there was this legacy of colonialism too. And then the move to a focus on French West Africa, when did that come and how? So when I started graduate school, I was particularly interested in Vichy France and the World War II era, questions about moral choices, experiences that people had under the occupation, And while I was at Rutgers working on my PhD, my advisor, Bonnie Smith, um, suggested I start thinking about colonialism. And what Bonnie said that really made a difference to me was she said, why don't you think about French colonialism as a form of occupation Mm -hmm. and people living there having to make difficult choices and having, you know, experiences based on being under occupation, in this case, the French being the occupiers. And so that really convinced me to start looking at colonialism. And um, I had taken some courses in African history at Rutgers with Al Howard and Barbara Cooper. And Mm -hmm. so I was kind of more, I was more oriented towards West Africa because of their influence rather than say Algeria, which a lot of of my uh, colleagues in graduate school were working on. So before we dive into the themes and issues in the book and the specific context of the interwar years in French West Africa, I wonder if, Kate, you could just give us a a bit of an overview of the imperial context of French West Africa, how we get to the interwar years, what the status of French West Africa is in the French Empire, just a bit of a Mm -hmm. broad sketch. So French West Africa, in French, its title is Afrique Occidentale Française. Mm. Um, AOF is how I abbreviate it in the book. And AOF was founded as a federation in 1895. So in a lot of ways, it was the result of the scramble for Africa and the Berlin Conference of the 1880s. And the French were able to map out a very large part of West Africa uh, for their possession. And so it includes the colonies of Senegal, Mauritania, Sudan, Niger, Upper Volta, Dahomey, Ivory Coast, and Guinea. 
Mm-hmm. And then after World War One, Togo also became a protectorate that was part of French West Africa. But the origins of the French in West Africa are much deeper than those 19th century roots. So going back to the era of the slave trade, there were French settlements along the coast of Senegal. And um, these included Saint-Louis and um, Goree Island, which is off the coast of Senegal, right off the coast of Dakar. Um, These were places where early French settlers in the 17th and 18th centuries um, lived, built communities, engaged in trade. And so that was partly why the French were able to get access to these regions further into the interior during the Berlin Conference. Senegal is most well known, I think, among French historians as being the French base in West Africa. Mm -hmm. And this is partly because of the four communes, which were these four cities, includes um, Dakar, Goree, Rufisque, and Saint-Louis, where during the 19th century, Africans who were living there and mixed race people as well got access to political rights. And so they voted and elected representatives to the French legislature, and they also had French civil institutions. Um, And then as AOF became French West Africa, they really retained their importance, partly because Dakar became the capital of the federation. Mm -hmm. It was the place where the governor general was located, and he really ruled over, in theory, all of those colonies. So the book, Kate, focuses on the surveillance of suspects in this colonial context between the world wars and what you have termed a culture of suspicion. So I guess I have two really big questions. One is, you know, why suspicion surveillance? And then this moment of the interwar years, what is distinctive, important about it? So I mentioned earlier that I was really interested in experiences and moral choices and living under occupation and what that might be like in a colonial context. And I thought that perhaps one way to find that evidence of colonial experiences and encounters would be to look in police files. But that's not what I found. I didn't find in them the sort of everyday life stories of colonialism that I thought might be there. Um, What I found was the suspicious persons. And a lot of the stories were about foreigners. Hmm. At first, I thought, well, I guess I can't use this because, you know, this is supposed to be a story about French and African people mm-hmm. and how they encountered each other. And, you know, and then at a certain point I realized, okay, wait, maybe there is something here that I can use and study something maybe different from what I was expecting. The suspects themselves and their lives were really what drew me to this research. But the documents were also saying something really important about the colonial administration. Mm. And what I detected was this pattern that during the first world war, the fears of the colonial administration were really related to foreigners and enemy nationals in particular. But then this real transition happened as the war ended. Between 1918 and 1922, I started to see the colonial administration, the governor general's office, but also the colonial ministry in Paris, showing this deep concern about radical international political activity. Mm -hmm. That's part of what I see as making this really an interwar phenomenon. But the other piece comes at the end of the interwar era when the Second World War begins. Um, And, of course, you know, that period being so dramatic and Mm -hmm. violent, you know, and there's, there's many fewer documents from that, from the war period itself. Then immediately as the war ends, I notice this other shift in which instead of writing reports about charlatans and mysterious people and misfits and, you know, political activity in terms of clandestine behaviors and things like that, they were reporting on much larger movements. Mm -hmm. And the independence movement really was breaking out in 45, 46 And there was just this real shift, you know, in which something had changed and what I call the culture of suspicion of the interwar period was over, really. You make what I think is such an important point, Kate, about the ways that a complex system of surveillance is sort of a a part of what allows colonialism to function in a general sense, the general kind of surveillance of the colonized, others who were in the colonial context, but that the focus on suspects is a distinct form of control and surveillance. So could you just 
say a little bit about that, why suspects and this culture of suspicion that you're focused on in the book is distinctive from a more generalized surveillance policing that goes with colonialism and the imperial context? Sure. Yeah, as I was reading a lot of the secondary literature on colonialism, surveillance is a word that comes up all the time. And surveillance of urban space in particular, Mm -hmm. which I discuss a little bit in my book, um, is considered to be an important part of colonial rule. But usually it's meant just in terms of, you know, if you're out in a public space, people will see you and you're under surveillance, not only by colonial authorities, but by everyone, you know, and so that kind of surveillance keeps a lot of behavior in check, you know, it's as part of the colonial power dynamic. Um, But what I was finding was that they actually identified specific people as being potential, you know, vectors of political or social behavior that could potentially be um, disruptive to the colonial order. And mm-hmm. so this is, I think, a, a very particular form of, co- of colonial surveillance that is, as you said, really different from other forms of colonial surveillance. But it also, yeah, provides this glimpse of some of the people that and how they responded to living under colonialism and their reactions to colonial power in general, right? Mm -hmm. Not always knowing, of course, that they were under surveillance. Throughout the book, Kate, you come back again and again to the relationship between suspicion and maybe some categories or ideas that people who study or think about the imperial context use and are more familiar with, this sort of framework of thinking about assimilation and association. And we'll get into some of the details of how you bring this how you bring these things up in the chapters. But I just wonder if at the outset you could say something a bit in general about how you see the book making an intervention into how we think about those categories, assimilation, association, like how does a focus on suspicion and suspects illuminate those policy sets, uh, the relationship between them, and then other things that are going on as these policies are shifting and forming and transforming. I really see the construct, like what I describe as the construction of the suspect. You know, in terms, of, especially in terms of being an African suspect as deeply connected to both of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, Assimilation meant that Africans would become assimilated to French culture, language, society. And so one would think that these people would be the allies of the French colonial administration. But in reality, they were often at odds with them. Mm -hmm. And in being exposed to... Uh, access to French institutions like courts and also elections, they adamantly demanded that those rights be maintained. And so they really used those that policy of assimilation in a lot of ways against the French. So it was this group of people, these assimilated or evolved, as they would say, Africans who became who began to really characterize what they thought of as suspicious, right? Mm-hmm. And the French created this. You know, they they assimilated these people. They brought, you know, they taught them French and they taught them about, you know, revolutionary politics going back to the 1780s. Then they became very fearful of them. The same is true for African men who served in the French army. You know, they mm-hmm. had done their duty serving France, but now they became prime suspects. In terms of association, I describe in the book, and this is my interpretation, it's not something I can directly prove in the documents, but association is understood as a way to kind of compensate Africans who participated in the First World War or who are at least understood to be deserving in the aftermath of the First World War of access to some political power. Mm -hmm. The surveillance of suspects was a way to make sure that granting power to elites in urban areas, um, or at least increasing access to political power, would not get out of hand, right? It was a way to subtly control urban people, because as they were, you know, understood as assimilated Africans, they were at risk of rebelling against the French. 
When you talked about the specificity of the French West African context, when compared to, let's say, North Africa or other parts of the French Empire, Kate, you talked about, you know, how French West Africa is not a settler colonial society. I wonder if you could just fill in some gray areas for me in terms of the history of the status of Africans in French West Africa, what their access to education is, citizenship, legal rights, political representation, just some of the context that might help us to really situate these Africans in relationship to French authorities in the French state. Empire. The people that were residents of the four communes, Dakar, Rufisque, um, Gore, and Saint Louis, were called the originaire. They had what they called the rights of French citizenship going back to 1848. So in the context of the 1848 revolution, the French legislature gave all people living in the French colonies the rights to French citizenship. So they had um, electoral institutions, they had civil institutions like mayors, and they elected a representative um, to the French legislature. When French West Africa expanded into the interior to the whole federation of French West Africa, the people that were not in the four communes were considered subjects. Mm. So the subjects didn't have any political rights. French administrators had power over them. Eventually, during the time of association, it was traditional authorities, that is, chiefs, People who were selected by the French, but nevertheless were African chiefs, had authority over them based on customary law. They went to African customary courts, so they didn't have access to French courts. They were subject to a law code that was called the Indigenat, mm. which was a very harsh law code that gave basically arbitrary power to French administrators to use corporal punishment on people, to imprison people, to basically terrorize people in rural areas. There, there was some opportunity for highly assimilated Africans to apply for citizenship. And so Leopold Senghor was one of the first to do this. And he was one of very few. So he wasn't, he was Senegalese, but he wasn't born in the four communes. And so he was able to prove that he had assimilated to being French and to get French citizenship. Mm -hmm. You asked about access to education. In the four communes, there would have been access to education. Going back to the 19th century, there was um, Catholic schools for missionaries. But then eventually there were French-supported schools. These um, cities, the four communes, would have had more elite schools. But in, of course, rural areas, um, you would have much more sort of um, basic schools, very low-level education uh, in terms of minimum primary expectations. So not a lot of educational opportunities. I think maybe they say 5%. Um, in this, in the 20s and 30s of Africans would have had access to, and that would have been boys and men had access to an mm -hmm. education. So the whole concept of French assimilation that people hold up as being like emblematic of colonialism in Africa, is, French colonialism in Africa, it's really, you know, it was really done on such a minimum level outside of Senegal that, you know, it's, it's really hard to say there was actually a true assimilationist policy I just want to come back, Kate, to this question of sources for a minute before we sure. dive into the chapters in more detail. I know that you're interested in the experiences of those living in the colony and the perspective of suspects, but you are dealing with these administrative policing surveillance files. So I just wonder how you deal with the challenge of the set of archival sources that you're working with. One of the things I tried to do as I moved forward through the chapters was to make sure that I was always reflecting on what sources said about the colonial administration, even when I was trying to use them to really talk more about the suspects. So, mm -hmm. for example, when I was writing about foreigners, you know, I want to write about how these foreigners were drawn to French West Africa and the reasons why. But ultimately, the very fact that foreigners predominate is really more suggestive about the colonial administrators themselves, that they were really linking foreignness with suspicion. I also, you know, sometimes could draw on some other sources that would make me skeptical of what the colonial authorities would say. Mm. For example, Dahomey, there was this nationalist movement that I write about, and 
Patrick Manning, who's an Africanist historian, has written a lot about Dahomey and this movement. And so I was able to draw on his work, you know, and he talks about these activists as being bourgeois nationalists. And then the sources in Dakar telling me that they're communists, you know, I would be very skeptical of the things that they would say. And so that makes made me, of course, question when they um, describe other people as being communists or radicals or anti-colonialists or whatever. Um, and so to often, I guess, moderate my language by saying something along the lines of supposed communist or would be mm -hmm. um, to try to just indicate that there's that question about what the sources have. In the first chapter of the book, Kate, the title of the chapter is uh, Creating Suspicion in Interwar French West Africa, and you talk about the emergence of a distinct kind of suspect surveillance after World War One, and you already sort of touched on this earlier, but I just want to ask you again a little bit about, you know, what the specific origins are of the new type of surveillance that emerges or at least grows in the wake of World War One. Well, I really see the shaping of suspicion and the emergence of the interwar suspect as being shaped by global forces and also local forces. And I tried to bring those two things together in this chapter. So globally, what I see is the Red Scare that's happening all over the world, but also very specifically to the French Empire, anti-colonial activity, especially in a place like Vietnam, that was mm -hmm. exploding, that was violent, that was aggressive, um, that was perhaps a legitimate threat to the colonial administration. Um, and then I see uh, also Algeria, a nationalist movement emerging. Um, and then I see all this information about anti-colonial activity, especially in Vietnam, but also coming out of um, colonial communities in Paris, all of this being centralized in Paris in the ministry under the um, leadership of Albert Sarro, who was the colonial minister mm -hmm. at the time. And he is the one that began this monthly sharing of propaganda reports. Um, they were called um, reports on anti I'm trying to think of the exact title, anti-colonial propaganda. And every month it would send one out beginning in May of 1922, in which he would describe, you know, there would be the black Africans in Paris, the Caribbean um, people in Paris, the Vietnamese in Paris, mm -hmm. and then it would be activity in Madagascar, activity in China, the United States. And so this long document that was summarizing all of the radical political activity that was happening all over the world, and it was landing on the desk of the governor general in Dakar, and it was giving him the sense that there was this growing threat that anti-colonial radicalism was going to burst out at any moment. And then in terms of the local piece, I really see some of these specific governors general as prioritizing this, as making sure that um, their lieutenant governors and that their other, the other administrators were taking seriously this threat and going out and seeking suspects and identifying people that should be under surveillance. Even though coming out of the war, um, the main concern was the arrival of Syrians and Lebanese and um, the control of migration, uh, metropolitan migration. And yet they, they kind of shift from be, having this fear of just general immigration to a fear about uh, radicalism coming in through foreigners. And so I see these things connecting and kind of shaping the sort of high-level atmosphere that created this as a colonial policy. One of the things I found most compelling about the book, Kate, is the way that your focus on this culture of suspicion allows you to illuminate the irrational side of colonial rule. So I guess I just want to ask you about, you know, the way in which the suspicion that's generated, like how much it corresponds to practical concerns and actual threats, and how much it is sort of I think you use the word fantasy, that it's a fantasy of colonial administrators. Could you, could you say a little bit about that? Sure. Um, that's something that I grappled with a lot. And I think that as I, when I first started reading these documents, you know, I took them 
to a degree at face value. And I thought, okay, this is something they're really afraid of, you know? Mm -hmm. And the more and more I would read through sources, you know, starting to realize like, okay, this is so small. Or, oh, that guy, he's actually from British Gambia. They're not actually even Senegalese people that are involved in this political activity. And so, I mean, I was often trying to discern, like, is this person really a communist or a radical or is this really something that's a product of their own imaginations and I think um, based on reading um, a little bit about Vietnam and what was happening there you start to see okay that's what a real colonial rebellion would look like you know when there's a thousand people on the the lawn of the governor general's home you know making threats and they're you know uh, someone's assassinated right and so none of this is happening I mean the only thing that's happening is Sometimes they're getting a newspaper in the mail, you know, and they're sharing it with someone else or they're going to a group, you know, where they're talking about ideas and not even like ideas that were, you know, they didn't want to talk about overthrowing the government. They were like, what if we got involved with supporting black people all over the world? You know, like those kinds of conversations, Mm -hmm. you know, which are not anti-French, you know, and so the fact that they were characterizing them in that way, you know, is really what made me think like, okay, they are just really overreacting. They're, they're looking for something that's just really not there. In this atmosphere of increasing suspicion, fear, and then surveillance, are there ways that the building up of this apparatus of investigation actually feeds into anti-colonial sentiment or activity? So, no, I wouldn't say that there was an increased resistance in terms of growing anti-colonialism, except that those dedicated people did try to find more ways to evade authority. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when it became illegal to send um, certain newspapers from the Metropole through the mail, they would use sailors to try to smuggle them in, um, or they would use their railway lines as a way to try to spread their materials. But really, like, this kind of activity that the French were particularly interested in was such a small group that, no, it's hard to say that it actually increased a lot. So in the second chapter of the book, Kate, you talk about the real techniques of surveillance that the authorities developed and engaged in over the course of the interwar years, shadowing, postal control, which you just mentioned, the port police, informants, denunciations, home searches. So what was the success rate of these kinds of activities? I mean, if there wasn't really a profound threat, what was the ultimate effect of the development of all of these strategies? I mean, I think many of them did end up being effective in terms of collecting information that helped them to disrupt political activity. So the LDRN, which is the Ligue de Défense de la Race Negra, which was probably the largest or most prominent anti-colonial, probably better term, pan-Africanist group, um, they were under surveillance and their mail was confiscated and many of the members of the group were subject to subtle forms of repression. Um, for example, Arthur Beccaria, who was a Senegalese man who had served in the First World War, he had contracted tuberculosis while he was serving in France and he was considered 100% disabled. Mm-hmm. But he worked for the French administration and they basically threatened to send him to a rural area where he would be working. So he knew that they were trying to stop his political activity. In some ways, that's a sort of more subtle form of repression. He didn't get arrested or put in jail or anything, mm-hmm. but he was threatened to lose his job and to lose his access to health care. And so another way the repression worked would be that um, people would find out they were under surveillance and so they would stop doing stuff, you know. Um, so in a lot of ways, just the techniques themselves did help to stem some activity. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I argue in that chapter is that so often their techniques were so haphazard and ineffectual and, you know, they would write in their reports, we don't know what happened, we don't know what this person is doing, so you have to assume that things are going on that, you know, I'll never know about because if it doesn't end up in this colonial archive, I can't really access it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I think one of the things that I found so compelling about this chapter is the point that you make that you just alluded to that, you know, the colonial government is never as strong as it would like to be or would like people to think that it mm-hmm. is and that there are weaknesses in these techniques and that, you know, the authorities fall back on things like rumor and gossip. And mm-hmm. the other thing that I thought was very interesting about that chapter was how you bring in the question of how legible the spaces of empire are and what some of the fault lines or weaknesses of are of techniques of surveillance, depending on the context and the spaces that authorities are trying to operate in. Could you say a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, I mean, the city that I mostly write about in that chapter is Dakar. It's Mm -hmm. the colonial capital. It's a place where the French should really have the maximum amount of power. You know, they should be able to saturate that city with their authority. They've built the city for their own purposes. And yet even in Dakar, you can see their weaknesses. You can see where they struggle to maintain power over the Medina, the African quarter. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't really conduct that much surveillance there. Things happen at the port that remain outside of their control. These policemen have been trained in France as police investigators, inspectors, and they are bringing metropolitan techniques. Mm-hmm. And that if they're going to be shadowing someone, they need to do it in an open urban space. And so it's interesting to me to see how this urban space appears to be a site of intense colonial power. And yet there is also this weakness there as well, where they are unable to accomplish all the things that they want to. In this chapter, Kate, you point to this kind of tension and hybrid and the combination of Republican and repressive impulses. So what's that mm-hmm. about, it, either in this chapter or, you know, how's that working in the book? Sure. So it's a complicated story in some ways. The history of Republican policing, or the history of policing in France, I should say, is connected to the history of republicanism in France. You know, when in 1870, the new republic was, the third republic was created, there was a debate about what role the police should play. Should they be this kind of aggressive police that represses politics and, you know, beats people up and tears up their tracks and disrupts political meetings. And most Republicans said, no, that's not the kind of police we want to have. That's an authoritarian style that goes back to the era of, you know, Napoleon III. And so they, they designed this political, this Republican police a police of sheer observation is what they called it. And that really shaped French policing, that they wanted to have this kind of distant surveillance. Mm. You know, I tried to think about that context in the colonial space, right? So if you think about Senegal, especially Dakar, which is a place that's supposed to be operating on Republican principles, right? How does that work there? Mm -hmm. And so surveillance, a kind of distant observational Republican surveillance is a perfect way for them to um, try to keep tabs on these people who were citizens and had access to rights, but who were considered potentially dangerous if they were to turn to radical politics. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, an ideal form of surveillance because it was supposed to be discreet. People weren't supposed to know about it. And so if they didn't know about it, all the better. If they did know about it, then they could understand it in terms of it being another form of republicanism. So therefore appropriate to that kind of urban context that was already a republican space. If the first two chapters of the book, Kate, are sort of focused on why the colonial administration gets into the kind of surveillance it gets into and how they go about it and what some of the weaknesses and issues are there. It's in the next three chapters of the book that you really focus on the suspects and thinking about them in terms of different categories and themes. So in the third chapter of the book, your focus is really on foreign suspects who make up, as you mentioned earlier, the largest group of suspects that the colonial state is focused on. So what can you tell us about these foreigners who come under surveillance? Who are they? Where are they from? In kind of broad sense. 
and what are they doing? So the foreigners, they really come from all over the world. Um, I include in the category of foreign uh, people from other French uh, colonies Mm -hmm. because they were really considered foreign. Although legally they were not treated as foreigners, they had a very complicated relationship with the state because they were considered natives um, and therefore subjects but they couldn't be like subject to customary law because of Africans because that wasn't their custom. So the, the administrators were often really unsure about what to do with them. Um, but I'm also talking about Europeans from Germany, Austria, Switzerland. There's people from China, from Argentina. There's just people, there's just a wide variety of foreigners that ended up in French West Africa and that became uh, subject to surveillance. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, some of them were involved in political activity. So someone like Edward Francis Small, so he was from the Gambia, and he was a labor activist. The Sierra Leoneans, who were Garveyists, um, were foreigners, and they were engaged in Garveyism, which was considered, you know, it was Pan-Africanism, was considered anti-colonial politics. But there's also a rather large um, group of foreigners, foreign suspects, who I describe as mobile and inscrutable. You know, they were violating social norms in a lot of ways. They, first of all, as foreigners, they didn't fit in. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I came into this project thinking this is a story about French people and African people and how they interacted. Mm -hmm. And then I realized like foreigners were actually a big part of this. And part of why they were considered suspicious was that they just didn't fit in. The French colonial authorities were like, what are you doing here? You know, the, the Reisinger family who I described, they were crossing the desert with very few resources on purpose, um, you know, because they were trying to win a travel contest. But they just were doing, so many of them were just doing these really bizarre things. They were going into rural areas, maybe. They were engaging with local people as charlatans or frauds, you know, claiming to be a doctor, but they were, it wasn't really a doctor. Um, you know, people who were just doing all kinds of things that were considered suspicious. So if you think back to what I described in chapter one about radical politics as being at the heart of what was suspicious, that definition just uh, expanded dramatically. Mm -hmm. Very often there would be a hint of suspicion. We think maybe this German journalist woman is a communist, but in reality, she's a German woman traveling alone. She's Jewish. She's uh, married to a man much older than her, and she's trying to meet lots of people and make contacts, and she's traveling out into the interior. She's going to Timbuktu, which is obviously a really remote place. And so... You know, one of the things I observe in this chapter is AOF as uh, a global crossroads, you know, as a place where so many people from around the world are coming and are, you know, sometimes trying to make money or trying to start a new life or just travel and have an adventure. They're really buying into some of the mythology about colonialism, you know, that it's uh, that Africa is a place of exoticism or you can have an adventure. And while this is something that might widely believed in Europe, the colonial administrators are really not okay with that. You know, they don't like that at all. And so they are investigating these people, you know, to see what they're up to. And so this kind of like foreign misfit really Mm -hmm. becomes a central character in that chapter. Um, And, you know, that's why I talk about the culture of suspicion, because it's not just anti-colonial politics. It's basically like a lot of other behaviors that people engage in that are outside of colonial norms. You know, you're supposed to either be a colonial administrator, a settler, a family member, but these people are coming in and just behaving in ways that are unexpected. And that's what really drives suspicion of a lot of the foreigners. Mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of a good transition into talking about the fourth chapter, where you focus on the policing of Frenchness and how the civilizing mission in French West Africa is kind of redefined through the process of surveillance of suspects. So in that chapter, you're really talking about the surveillance of metropolitan French in French West Africa. So how do they fit in to this picture? They have a lot in common with many of the foreigners. And it would have been easy to create a chapter on Europeans, you know, white people, as opposed to putting the French in a separate category. 
But I also really saw the French suspects as having this particular relationship with the colonial state. Mm. First of all, they had tremendous freedom to travel. Um, As French people, I think until maybe 19... 25, um, they didn't have to have any form of identification, you know, because they were traveling within the French Empire. And the authorities were really angry about this. They wanted more control over them because people who were poor, criminals, they claimed, were coming to French West Africa, exploiting the native people, um, you know, maybe trying to escape from a criminal past or whatever. And so they had a lot of freedom. Um, Eventually, they just had to have an identification card. To travel, they didn't have to have passports. They didn't have to have a deposit, which foreigners did. Hmm. They didn't have to have a foreigner's card, which the foreigners did. And they also couldn't be expelled from the colony the way that foreigners could. So one of the things about the foreigners is that they could just be easily dispensed with, you know, on little pretext. They could be expelled from the colonies. Um, And the French, they couldn't do that. They couldn't just get rid of them so easily. And so many of them also had. Uh, the French suspects, a pretty strong relationship with the state um, where they would write and ask for favors, right? Perhaps not realizing that they were already under scrutiny of the authorities. They would act as French people who felt entitled to behave with authority, you know, while they were traveling maybe into the interior. In some ways, like I said, they can be distinguished from foreigners, but among the white European foreigners, a lot of them did have a lot in common, right? A lot of the European foreigners acted kind of brazenly with the authority of being white people in Africa, and they too sometimes would ask for favors. But the French suspects also were engaged in particularly French politics. Um, Some of them were anti-clericalists, anarchists, Mm. or royalists. So, you know, they were deeply connected to some of the politics going on back in France that other foreigners wouldn't be. You also make the point in this chapter, Kate, that the definitions of Frenchness that are at stake here include issues of race and sex, legal and moral behaviors and boundaries, I guess. Could you say a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, I think one of the reasons why French people in particular got a lot of scrutiny from the government was the desire to maintain a positive image of Frenchness just for the sake of the colonial project as a whole. Mm -hmm. That if French people um, were going around misbehaving, uh, misrepresenting French civilization, that that was a negative for them. It was especially true when administrators were caught spreading communist propaganda or something like that, which did happen. Um, But I, you know, I particularly discussed the pressure on French women, uh, French white women to behave sexually in ways that were considered appropriate so that whenever um, there are very few women under surveillance, but those that do come up in these files are almost always for some kind of sexual or moral transgression. Um, uh, One woman who was, accused of being a prostitute and selling drugs, other women having relationships outside of their marriages, and that sort of becoming a big part of the scrutiny that they get from the government. In addition to maybe um, one of the women who I discuss who was perhaps spreading some communist tracts. They never had any evidence of that, but you know, they frequently described hotel rooms she went to with different men. And so I really see that as part of this you know, in the interwar era is the first time large numbers of white French women settled in the colonies. And so there's a lot of anxiety about that. Um, But like I said, you know, that's really not what they were expecting to do when they started this project of surveillance. It was really supposed to be anti-colonial political activity, but what they ended up finding was something else that was going on that that they also found threatening, which was this kind of defying of social norms. I get this image, Kate, of this very unwieldy, you know, system that develops that, you know, the aim in principle is to put a stop to radical political activity, but then, you know, there are these foreigners and how many people and files and things are we talking about? Well, so the number of files that I looked at from between 1914 to 1939 were about 400 distinct files. 
but they were so varied in terms of their detail. There are sometimes one page, you know, we're looking for this person. Sometimes there are voluminous files. So for example, Tiamoko Garan Coyote, he is a set who's a Sudanese agitator. He was in Paris um, the entire interwar period. He was studying in um, actually he was studying in Aix for a while in Aix-en-Provence and then he was in Paris involved in these different political groups. And he kept threatening to come to AOF, but then he never ended up coming. So there's a huge file about him and he never even came back to French West Africa. Many of the European suspects have very detailed files but then many of the african suspects have very small files Mm. and so sometimes they'll have a name and you know a little bit of information but not much beyond that so you know it was frustrating with many of the african sources like they don't have first of all the characters are not the same this like charlatan or false personality type is just doesn't really exist in those because that's not those were mostly people that they thought were involved in politics, they don't collect the same amount of information. And I think it has something to do with their inability to really penetrate those networks and to really get to know as much information as they would like. Whereas with the Europeans, they're more familiar. They can get extra information, say, from the Metropole, Mm -hmm. or they can have informants get very detailed information like this Frenchman, Pierre Magar, you know, he's in his hotel room with a prostitute and the postmaster and they're drinking champagne. How, how can they possibly know that except that somebody informed them of it? And so those kinds of detailed stories, you know, come out in some of the files. Mm-hmm. Um, but others, you know, are very, very brief. The last chapter of the book, Kate, focuses on African suspects, radical politics and colonial repression. So what can you tell us about these networks of Africans that French authorities may have had, you know, a harder time accessing? What role did French figures play in the workings of these networks? And how resistant to surveillance and this culture of suspicion were these networks in this period? The first one that I write about in this chapter is actually a Muslim-based uprising that happened in the context of the First World War in which a group of men who were led by um, a person who was supposedly but probably was misrepresenting himself as a marabou or religious leader, and they stole a cache of weapons from a military base, Mm. um, about 20 rifles, and they were supposed to use these rifles to fight against the French. And I found this to be a really interesting story, mostly because it was the only example of a real threat of violence that I, I really saw in any of the um, networks that were or um, suspects that were investigated by the police. And it was particularly interesting to me because this idea that Islam would be something that would unite people to oppose the French is something that sort of underlays a lot of the discussion about threats to French colonialism Mm -hmm. and yet never emerges as sort of like a main problem, right? And so to me, it just underlines how the fantasy of communism or pan-Africanist anti-colonialism was what the French really thought was going to be the thing that opposed them, you know, really was not any kind of real threat. So in terms of other networks, um, the largest and probably most expansive was the Ligue de Défense Ras Negra, the Ligue of Defense of the Negro Race, which was a metropolitan-based organization. Um, they had a branch of it that started in Dakar, which was led by Arthur Beccaria. They had uh, connections throughout AOF. They were able to use the railways. They were able to use um, the ports in order to spread their newspapers. Their ideas were mostly pan-Africanist. And so they would focus on stories of black people all over the world. They covered the Scottsboro trial in the United States and uh, stuff happening in South Africa. They really were pan-Africanists and they were able to get some interest among people of AOF. But um, I would also say that this was a group that really was successfully repressed. Um, In 1927, 1928, they were reaching their peak in terms of organization. And it was at the same time 
time that the French banned metropolitan publications mm -hmm. that had, you know, revolutionary nature, however they would describe it. And so there had been a law in the press against um, that prevented the arrival of foreign press. But now this was a metropolitan journal right. and it was considered suspicious. And so that really cut back on their organization and they were under uh, surveillance. Um, the people in Ivory Coast that were involved, you know, the authorities wrote about how they, you know, these men knew they were under surveillance and they ultimately just stopped their activity because of that. And so it was ultimately probably successful. One of the other interesting networks I describe is the International Workers of Education, which mm. were um, based in Dahomey. They were you, they were trying to start a teachers' union, basically. And once this was discovered, many of the men were the teachers were sent to rural areas or were given, you know, a reprimand, and they were told, you know, you have to stop this activity. I mean, so they weren't sent to jail or arrested or anything, but um, they found ways to, you know, prevent them from continuing their activity. So in, in a lot of ways, they were successful, at mm. least in terms of, of what they found. In terms of finding out, you know, lots of details about these people, they weren't. And that's why the documents, I think, often don't have tons of information the way they do about some of the European suspects. Mm -hmm. In terms of the role of French figures, there were a few Europeans. There was a Portuguese woman who had a cafe that served as sort of a central point of contact mm -hmm. for the LDRN and the distribution. She's not French, but she was a Portuguese there was a newspaper publisher named Jean Deremy Doxoby who was kind of an interesting guy who was French and he published a newspaper and he was a friend of um, Armand Angrand. And Angrand came from a kind of uh, prominent and old family um, of the, you know, one of the originaire families. They had been involved in politics going mm -hmm. back you know, into the 19th century. And Angrel had actually made contact with the Sierra Leoneans who were involved in the Garvius group. And Doxaby was going to um, help Angrel start a newspaper, kind of, you know, not a radical newspaper, but to promote Senegalese politics. And that was something that never got off the ground. But you could kind of see how there were some uh, French people who would be more involved in these kinds of politics. There were French communists, of course, who were in AOF, and um, they sometimes were spreading um, their beliefs to mm -hmm. Africans and making connections and, you know, trying to, say, find out more information about working conditions so they could send it back to the PCF in France. Um, so even though I've divided my chapters, you know, by putting Africans in their own chapter, of course, they had lots of contacts with foreigners and French people. And, you know, when people had similar politics, they crossed racial lines frequently. In the conclusion to the book, Kate, you look ahead to the years following the interwar period, to the Vichy period, and then to the kind of fate of surveillance after 1942 under the Free French, up to, you know, the years until independence. So in those concluding pages, what changed uh, during, the, during the, that period that follows the one that is the focus of the book? So during World War II itself, the Vichy regime comes to power in AOF, and they use much more, I would say, directly repressive techniques, mm. interning people, arresting people, the kind of, you know, surveillance of charlatans, that's just, that's not a concern of theirs anymore, mm -hmm. I don't think. There is much more concern about collaboration with, say, the Gaullists, right, the resistance, or with communism. And so anybody who's suspicious would really be jailed and not be subject to surveillance, right. I think, um, is the case during the war. And then after the war, you know, as I was I was beginning to mention earlier, there there is at the Brazzaville Conference in um I think it's 1944, where they begin, you know, they begin to realize, okay, we're going to have to change some of our repressive, our harsher colonial policies, policies for example, forced labor, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there begins to be this, these steps towards the French Union, where they're going to have 
political rights for everybody. And, you know, there's like a lot of different possibilities for that. But certainly there is just this sense among Senegalese, but also other parts of AOF that, you know, politics are going to be more open now. And there's actually another thing that came at Brazzaville was political parties became legal. And so there's just this outpouring of political sentiment, right? Unions become legal. Um, people start going to mass meetings in the, um, in the open. Mm-hmm. And so th- instead of it being like, well, we followed this person and we saw him exchange a newspaper with this other person, it's like, so-and-so gave a speech and there were 500 people there. And here's the text of his speech, you know, and none of it's secret, none of it's hidden, And so to me, that's the end of the culture of suspicion. It's something new. There's still surveillance. Um, There were strikes that were happening and there was attempts to infiltrate the strikers. There were um, researchers, even people like Jean Sure Canal, who's one of the historians who um, is a pioneer in the history of French West Africa. Um, he was kicked out of AOF for his, um, you know, attitude of being, you know, a historian that was critical of the colonial regime. So the colonial government didn't change 100%, but I think the political scene did. And so there was no way to really keep a lid on things anymore. And there was no reason to because so many of the activities that had been illegal, like starting a union, no longer were. I was really struck reading the book, Kate, by like just the kind of dramatic and literary flair and potential of so many of these scenes that you describe in the book and these characters. I mean, from the opening where you're talking about this, what is he, German and the The Vietnamese cook and the Austrian, sorry. And then the, and then the Vietnamese cook and the hotel. And, you know, I, I've got these really vivid images in my mind as I was reading the book and I was thinking about, Michael Miller's work on the interwar years and spy literature and just what you might have to say about the ways that this kind of culture of suspicion fed into literature and eventually film, which you mentioned a couple of, you know, films over the course of the book and vice versa, that there was to the extent that this was kind of an imaginary, you know, is the interwar a period when people are also just really into intrigue and spies <laughs> in a certain way? And does that inform? It's oh kind of gosh. a yeah. it's kind of an out there question, but I'm just curious what you think about it. No, I'm with you. I, I mean, that's why I love these documents. You know, I just was so drawn to them. And um, yeah, Michael Miller's book, Shanghai on the Metro, was a big mm. inspiration to me. And I remember him saying in that book, you know, that he's trying to recreate this milieu, you know, this atmosphere. And I think that's what I was trying to do with this book as well. Um, What is amazing to me is that these people exist not only in fiction, but in real life. You know, I think that the novels and the films, you know, fed Mm -hmm. on each other. So the film that I did, like one of the films I mentioned, the book Pepe Lomoco is a 1937 film and it's portraying this like exotic side of Algeria and I think that people went to places like Algeria or Dakar and you know had those kinds of experiences but then also like seeing a film like that or reading a novel or travel memoir made people want to go and have that experience and also think that this is a place I can go and I can reinvent my identity and I can Mm -hmm. claim to be someone else You know, I think that's an interesting question, how it fits into the interwar milieu, because um, that was certainly something people were fascinated by in the time period. But I also think that the authorities, like, literally, legitimately were thinking this Vietnamese cook was involved in communist activity. It wasn't just, you know, something they found interesting. But to me, to find those sources, it's just a really, was just a real pleasure. Yeah, yeah, no, I could see that. I would love to see a screenplay written about my book one day. (laughs) Well, Kate, I have one last question for you, which is, what are you working on now? Okay, well, um, my new project is about a Senegalese man. His name is Mamadou Kane, and he came to France probably during World War I. But then during the 1920s and 30s, he reimagined himself as a prince and a wizard. And <laughs> Sorry, I was not expecting you to say that at all. So. Yeah, he set up a shop as a fortune teller. 
and then um, during the Second World War, claimed that he was a marabou, a Muslim religious leader, and he got work with the Germans, um, ministering to all the troops that were um, imprisoned in French or in German camps in France, mm-hmm. and was eventually convicted of treason for collaborating with the Nazis. So. In this new book, I'm looking to use his life to explore deeper issues about French colonialism, because um, he was born in Gory Island in Senegal. He was an originaire, um, but also the interwar period. He went to um, the colonial expositions, you know, where he, he you know, uh, performed as a wizard. And then also, of course, moving into the Second World War. So it's a global biography that uses this man's life to explore different themes in uh, France and the French Empire. Well, that sounds well, literally fantastic. Um, Thank you. That sounds terrific. So I hope you'll keep me posted on that project. Kate, I just want to thank you so much for speaking with me um, and for writing the book. Thanks for having me, Roxanne. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network.